Well, once again, it is a great joy and a great privilege to be able to minister the Word of God to you this morning. So will you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 12? I normally don't do this, but I have been going through the same section of Scripture um, very, very, very carefully and making it different parts of the same sermon. So this is Categories of Spiritual Gifts, Part 4. All right. And we are in first Corinthians 12, eight through 11. Now, as we return, let me remind you that we have been studying the representative sampling of spiritual gifts that Paul delineates here in this passage, as well as some other passages in the New Testament, not only for the purpose of understanding them and applying these truths to our life, but also to honor the Holy Spirit who grants them and empowers us with them. And this is also very important given the doctrinal aberrations that we see all around us, especially those that are taught and practiced by the charismatic and Pentecostal movements that continue to bring such chaos and confusion into the church. So let me read this text to you and we will examine yet another portion of it. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy. Now, all of these we've examined very closely, and I'll not repeat them again. But today, the text goes on to say, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits. That's what we will look at this morning. But let me read the rest of the passage. To another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Now, as we have studied, some of these gifts ceased at the end of the apostolic era, and I've explained that in great detail But may I remind you that even as every cell and every organ in our physical body is necessary to maximize the capabilities of our body so that it will function properly and efficiently, so too the divine endowments that the Spirit of God gives to every believer helps maximize the capabilities of the body of Christ so that we will function properly and officially. And whenever spiritual gifts are misrepresented and whenever they are abused, the body of Christ will suffer along with each individual member. So today I wish to draw your attention to the gift of spiritual discernment. A real easy outline, one point, the gift of spiritual discernment. Notice In the middle of verse 10, he says, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits. This is the divine enablement that the spirit of God gives to some to help them discern true from false statements made by people who deceptively claim that their words are prophetic revelations from God. In other words, this gift will enable certain ones in particular to be able to determine whether a statement is from the operation of the Holy Spirit or from some lying spirit influencing an individual or from just some 
unaided human spirit, as is often the case where people just make stuff up. The term distinguishing, diacresis in the original language, is a term that basically means separating or differentiating or even appraising. And in this context, it speaks of, of separating truth from error. And so in other words, this is the ability to spot unbiblical counterfeits that are concocted by lying spirits, by false teachers, by, as Paul says, doctrines of demons taught by false prophets, false preachers who have been influenced by the father of lies. Now, many times these people do it wittingly. They're making stuff up in order to con people. And other times they just do it out of ignorance. They just don't know any better. But those with this gift have a special ability to see many times what other believers cannot see or cannot discern. Sometimes that's because people don't really understand truth and so they can't spot a counterfeit. But it's also because not all believers have the, this particular spiritual gift to see things as clearly as others. Now, this gift is listed immediately after the gift of prophecy, if you will notice. And therefore, it's a companion gift to it. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 29, Paul says, Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. So in other words, qualified pastors and teachers who hold to apostolic New Testament doctrine will have this gift. The gift of prophecy, as you will recall, is not foretelling, but forthtelling, preaching revealed truth that's already recorded in Scripture. And people with this gift will see that um, there are times when people will say things that are simply unbiblical, that are simply false, and they will point that out. These will be the watchmen on the walls, those with a special in insight and understanding, able to distinguish between lying spirits and the Holy Spirit. Now, this, you will recall, was especially important in the early days of the church because they did not have the New Testament canon. This was prior to the completion of the canon of scriptures. And so those with that gift in that day had to be amongst the people in order to validate what was said and guard the church from being led astray by some false teacher who may be influenced by some de demonic spirit or who may be just making things up, as is often the case. So when a person spoke up in church and they claimed that they had uh, a word from God, someone other than that prophetic speaker needed to render an immediate opinion upon the validity and the source of that prophet's message. Was that what was just said demonic? Was that from the Holy Spirit or was it from just some human fantasy? Now, there are several examples of this that we can see in the New Testament. For example, Peter, you will recall, exercised this gift in, in uh, Acts 5. Remember how he he was able to discern the duplicity of Ananias and Sapphira, and that did not end up well for them. You will recall as well Paul and Silas in Acts 16 in Philippi. Let me read, beginning in verse 16, the little story there. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. By the way, the term divination in Greek is python. 
That's the word that we use for the snake, a python. So literally in the Greek, this girl had a python spirit. Now let me give you a little background here. Um, A python supposedly guarded the oracle at Delphi and represented the the god Apollo in Greek mythology. And they believed that, that Apollo could predict the future. So this is what this girl was all about. He goes on to say that she was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So in other words, this girl was a medium in contact with demons who could supposedly predict the future. Now, the serpent, by the way, was a symbol of augury or or omens. And anyone who could predict the future in that day was described as one that was led by the python. So that's who this girl was. And in fact, Greek and Roman commanders would never embark upon a major military strategy apart from seeking the wisdom of an oracle, consulting with an oracle to determine the outcome of a military victory. In fact, even emperors would do the same before they made major decisions. Now, this slave girl was a clairvoyant or had a clairvoyant gift, so to speak, And she was, of course, a veritable gold mine for these people. They were making money off of this. So the text goes on to say, following, she was following after Paul and us. She kept crying out, saying, these men are bond servants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Well, that's interesting. The text says she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed. And turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. He had the gift of distinguishing spirits. By the way, you remember the rest of the story. It ruined their business. These guys were infuriated. And so they they dragged them before the, the courts. Paul and Silas were brutally beaten with rods. They were cast into the innermost prison. And their feet were put in stocks. And then you remember the Lord had other plans and they were later released. Well, it's just another example of one in the New Testament that had the gift of distinguishing spirits. Paul describes the exercise of this gift as well in 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Well, the others that would pass judgment on what was spoken in the church would have been other prophets in the congregation who were listening, who also possessed this gift. So the primary purpose of this spirit-empowered gift is to identify counterfeits by comparing it to biblical truth. And unfortunately, those with this gift are typically despised and seen as divisive in the body of Christ today. But that is exactly the purpose of the gift, to divide, to divide truth from error. And, of course, that infuriates heretics. They don't like to be exposed. Folks, remember, truth always demands scrutiny, but error demands tolerance. Now, you must understand the majority of Christian churches even today are made up of more non-believers than believers As Jesus warned in Matthew 7, those who profess Christ, but they do not possess him. And therefore, you have churches that are filled with what Paul described as the natural man. Remember the natural man in 1 Corinthians 2.14. 
the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And the text says, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That term appraised, anachronitai, was a judicial term in Greek, and it, it referred to a person that was, was therefore incapable of rendering a decision because they could not recognize the facts in a court of law. And so these are people, non-believers, that are in churches today that cannot recognize the truth of Scripture, even when presented with the facts. They have no discernment, and they have no understanding. Jesus describes them, by the way, in Matthew 7 as being self-deceived. They are Christian in name only, proven by the fact that they fail to produce the fruits of Christ-like obedience. There in verse 21 of Matthew 7. You know, folks, I have heard preachers say things in churches that are so outlandish and so blatantly unbiblical that, that I sit there and just cringe. It's like somebody taking their nails on a chalkboard. I don't know. Do we still have chalkboards today? Okay. Bear with me. I'm getting old. Uh, the, the closest thing I can think is having to listen to rap music. Okay. Maybe that gives you the idea. And there have been situations where I, where I hear this, and the, the tragic thing is you look around and you see people laughing and nodding their heads and celebrating what is being said. And there have been many who have attended this church who have been deceived by false doctrine and, and, or worship some phony predator in a pulpit or love some, some book filled with deceptions. And then... When we point out the error or the hypocrisy, they, they are infuriated and, and they leave the church. They are like those in 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 3. They will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside unto myths. And this is a perfect description of what is happening today in the charismatic and Pentecostal movement with such aberrant theology, a movement with self-appointed apostles and phony signs and wonders and supposed healings, people being slain in the spirit and believing in this, this idea of, of you can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then you have all these counterfeit tongues and counterfeit worship and private revelations that go untested. Promises of, of physical health and material wealth and temporal happiness. It's interesting, the, the studies indicate that 87% of all Pentecostals live in poverty. And although almost nine, therefore, of every ten Pentecostals live in poverty, the prosperity gospel uh, continues to lure these people into the movement while their leaders laugh all the way to the bank as they fleece their followers so, so, to, so as to support their extravagant and flamboyant lifestyles and notoriously immoral lifestyles. By the way, what a contrast to Jesus who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, right? What a contrast. And because so many true believers have been brought up in churches where the word of God is just simply not taught, 
and sound doctrine is avoided at all cost. What we have today are so many churches with genuine believers who really don't know the truth. And if I can say this in all kindness, they're too ignorant to know they're ignorant. And the lack of discernment among evangelicals today is absolutely staggering. Most Christians today are doctrinal, doctrinally illiterate and more influenced by the world than by the word. And as a result, they're not troubled by what they see in, for example, these charismatic movements. They're not troubled by counterfeits. They're not troubled by homosexuality. They're not troubled by women preachers and abortion and the social gospel invading the church and on and on it goes. Look no further than what's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention, as I talked about last week, with Beth Moore and people like that, with all of these new revelations and talking with God and all of that silliness. The Southern Baptists, unfortunately, are going down the same path as many other mainline denominations. I've talked with people that are, that are in high positions of leadership in the Southern Baptist Convention, and they are, they are seriously concerned about what they see happening. I fear that they're, well, we all fear that they're going down the same path as many others have done. Like, for example, the Presbyterians years ago, many of them embraced theological liberalism, and they moved away. Now you have the Presbyterian Church USA that, that is basically an apostate church. Radically different than other conservative, old-line Presbyterians that are among the most godly people you will ever want to meet. Let me give you an example. Cincinnati.com reports what happens in what happened in a Presbyterian church. It reports that drag queen Sparkle Lee brought an LGBT storyline to the Mount Auburn Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati. This is just recently. Dan Davidson, a custodian, recently spent hours applying makeup and glitter to become Sparkle and read a story to children. The service, the report said, featured, quote, God welcomes all by the choir. Then Sparkle came out to read to the, quote, youngest disciples while wearing a flowing pink drew and green curls. The story Sparkle chose was about Harvey Milk, an openly homosexual politician who died years ago. Milk was accused in biographies of preying on young boys, and he was a huge supporter of Jim Jones, who took nearly 1,000 people to Jonestown, where they all died in a mass cyanide murder-suicide. The article goes on, while Sparkle's story was directed toward children sitting at the speaker's feet, some teenagers also joined them in the front, and the whole congregation, young and old, clapped at the exciting parts of the tale, the report said. They went on and said the event was part of the church's celebration of, quote, Pride Month, which promotes homosexuality. Then finally it says, Stacy Midge, the pastor, said the story fits her belief that, quote, God loves everyone. Folks, this is not isolated. This is happening all over the world. This is an indication that these people have no grasp whatsoever of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have no understanding of, of God's love that can never be separated from his justice. If I can give just an important digression here, 
what that female pastor does not understand and what many do not understand is that God's love for the world is totally undeserved and God's love does not extend to everyone savingly. Otherwise, everyone would be saved. Jesus made it clear that the wrath of God abides upon sinners who refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Jesus made that very clear in John 3.36. And it was this very wrath that Jesus bore in his body as a substitute for sinners for all who will believe. So it is God's love that moves him to act savingly towards sinners. And it, is his, and it is his justice that ensures he will accomplish salvation in a manner that is consistent with his holiness. It's God's love that motivated him to reconcile sinners to himself. God's plan of redemption is born out of his good pleasure, the good pleasure of the Father and his free and sovereign Electing love, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, verse 9 as well, and so many other passages. The love of God, dear friends, is the cause and the source of Christ's atoning work on the cross. For it was on the cross where his love and his justice came together. But unless a sinner repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and wholeheartedly embraces Christ as Savior and Lord, that person will experience the eternal wrath, not the eternal love of God. And therein is the power of the gospel. Now, my point with the drag queen illustration and its justification based on a heretical view of the love of God is to demonstrate the kind of blasphemous, damning errors that can occur when churches and seminaries and denominations jettison the doctrines of inspiration, for example, of Scripture, the doctrine of the authority of Scripture, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. And then when all of that is thrown out the window, then it's easy to embrace the charismatic practice of new revelation apart from Scripture. And when this happens, charlatans can just make stuff up, which in turn gives Satan free reign to do his mischief, like bringing a drag queen into an ostensibly Christian church to teach children. I mean, folks, Sodom and Gomorrah would blush at this type of wickedness. And this is what happens when a church does not have biblically qualified leaders those with the gift of prophecy, which is preaching, those with the gift of distinguishing of spirits who have the gift of discernment, those who can spot false doctrine and false teachers, as well as divisive heretics and hypocrites that can infiltrate the church and wreak havoc in the church. Those, so those with the gift of distinguishing spirits or the gift of discernment could be likened to a well-trained physician. You know how when you go to a, to, for your annual physical, hopefully you all do that, and they take the blood tests and so forth, they are able to spot certain things and think, oh, time out, we need to do something here. But when self-appointed apostles are allowed to stand behind pulpits and claim that God's telling them this or telling them that, claiming special revelation, at that point, churches 
provide a red carpet for the father of lies to come in and deceive. Now, true prophets or preachers with the gift of distinguishing spirits are never going to be welcomed in these circles. They're going to be hated. They're going to be despised. I can't tell you some of the emails that I get from people and others like me. And this is the legacy of the charismatic Pentecostal movement. Nonsensical babble they call heavenly speech or tongues of angels or private prayer language. People laughing and barking and vomiting in the spirit. People lying on the floor, writhing and wiggling. I've seen this. Acting like they're giving birth to something. Trying to heal injured or disabled people. Many times causing more injury and even death. Being slain in the spirit. A phenomenon that you can see in manifestations of voodoo and, and other magic rites. You see the same type of thing in, in various sects in the Orient, in primitive tribes, in Africa, in Latin America, and even in the Mormon cult. And then maybe some of you have heard of grave sucking. I first heard about this a few years ago and had to deal with it with some people that were involved with it. It's also called grave soaking. It's a, it's a, a charismatic occultic practice of lying down on a grave or, or placing your hands on a tombstone and trying to get the anointing or the mantle from the dead, trying to soak from their presence uh, a portion of their supernatural anointing. You can go on, online and see videos of this. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable what people will believe. By the way, that is based on a misunderstanding of 1 Kings thirteen twenty one, where you will recall a dead man touched the bones of Elijah and he was raised and so forth. You see, naive and biblically illiterate people, especially college students, are, are drawn to these types of things like a moth to a flame. They're easily seduced by all manner of wickedness. And with charismatics, there is nothing too outlandish, nothing too bizarre. In his book, The Law of Sound Mind, Dr. Peter Masters explains why unrestrained emotionalism and the loss of, 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 of rational control is a key component, component to charismatic worship. By the way, Dr. Masters is the pastor of London's Metropolitan Tabernacle that was founded in 1650. Um, that was where Charles Spurgeon preached for 38 years. But here's what he said, quote, Charismatics claim that by maintaining rational control over our minds and actions, we are opposing and quenching the work of the Holy Spirit. They say that believers must be prepared to surrender rational control in order that they may be open to direct divine activity in both worship and Christian service. John Wimber observes with concern that, quote, fear of losing control is threatening to most Western Christians, end quote. By the way, as a footnote, some of you will remember back in the 70s, there was a signs and wonders movement, very popular um, with John Wimber, uh, who along with, with Chuck Smith developed both the Calvary Chapel and the Vineyard movement. Dr. Masters went on to say that Wimber, quote, insists that we must overcome our fears 
because rational control must be forfeited for tongues speaking to occur, for soaring ecstatic sensations to be felt in worship, for messages from God to be received directly into the mind, and for miraculous events to happen, such as healings, end quote. Of course, this is utterly contrary to so many passages of Scripture, especially the way Jesus told us that we are to worship. He says that God is spirit, and we are to worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, we are to worship him with the proper heart attitude that joyfully submits to God as he has revealed himself in his word. The subjective is to be regulated by the objective and, our, and, of course, Scripture centers upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, not the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus, the Word made flesh, who ultimately revealed his Father and so forth. But, folks, when, when people have not been taught the truth, and this is so sad, when they have not been taught the truth on a consistent basis, And when, frankly, the truth isn't all that important and they're constantly looking for the the newest revelation and the newest exciting something that's supposed to be happening in the church, then suddenly what happens is truth takes a back seat to special revelations. False teachers then will appear like fruit flies growing on a rotten banana. Allow me to give you a typical example of the chaos that often accompanies charismatic worship where those with the true gift of prophecy and preaching and the distinguishing of the spirits do not even exist. And I know several of you have come out of this background and certainly a lot of our listeners online. The example that I want to give occurred at the Toronto Blessing uh, in the mid-1990s and I know there's been some of you that were actually a part of that Um, This was described by Meredith McGuire in his book, Living Religion, as, quote, a powerful, immediate experience, experience of blessing by the Holy Spirit manifested by gifts of the Spirit, such as hysterical laughter, shaking, speaking in tongues, dancing, being slain in the Spirit, and often accompanied by a profound sense of inner healing or transformation, end quote. Now, here's an example of what that worship service, some of those worship services were like. And this is also indicative of many others that occur today. But this was a worship service that was held at the Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship in 1995. And it was described by the first-hand experience of sociology professor Margaret M. Paloma. She observed this. So here's what she says, quote, The outbreaks of laughter continued to gather momentum. Evangelist Byron Mote proclaimed, quote, God is throwing one major party. He then opened to the first chapter of Luke, seeming to begin a sermon about Mary, the mother of Jesus. As people continued laughing throughout the auditorium, Mote's speech became slurred. She went on to say, he sat down trying to gain composure, looking like a drunk struggling to keep from falling off the bar stool. Mote soon fell to the floor, quote, drunk in the spirit. As people laughed and applauded, Jan Mote then sought to fill her husband's place as the speaker for the meeting by returning to a passage from Song of Solomon, quote, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, end quote. 
Although Jan Moat, too, was struggling to retain her composure, having to sit down at one point because her, quote, knees were weak, she spoke about how laughter was opening people up to receive the love of God. Those in the congregation not spiritually drunk, laying on the floor or laughing out of control, then followed her in singing, My Jesus, I love you. End quote. Now, while the Toronto blessing, which I would call the Toronto blasphemy, basically disappeared around the year 2000 or so, it demonstrates the bizarre antics and the frenzied emotionalism that is indicative and frankly encouraged in many charismatic circles and Pentecostal worship services. And this is all the product of counterfeit gifts of the Holy Spirit. Doctrines of demons birthed by lying spirits and the father of lies. But dear friends, true prophets or preachers of the word who will have the gift of discernment along with other mature saints that are grounded in scripture will be able to spot these frauds a mile away. And it will be very disturbing to them because it so dishonors the Lord our God, especially the Holy Spirit. Those with the true gift of prophecy and the distinguishing of spirits will once again have that, that spiritual, supernatural, frankly, ability, according to Scripture, to be able to spot heresy and heretics and hypocrites that will try to destroy the church. Now, notwithstanding the fact that God has given the church those who are specially gifted in this way, every believer is to develop whatever measure of discernment that they already have. We see this, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12. We studied this before, beginning in verse 2. Paul says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except the Holy Spirit. Now, as you will recall, just briefly, uh, as we studied, this was rooted in, in, in Greek dualism, um, and philosophical dualism that the Gentiles believed and, and, and then the Jews also couldn't understand how you know, Jesus would hang on a tree because only those that are cursed hang on a tree and so forth. But would that all churches exercise discernment? And I appreciate so many of you that are willing to do that. Would that we all be like, remember the Jews in the synagogue of, of Berea, even as they first heard the gospel... They studied the truths that proclaimed Jesus as Messiah. And Luke described them in Acts 17.11. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And similarly, Paul warned the saints in Thessalonica. You will recall in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 20, he says, Do not despise prophetic utterances. In other words, those that preach the word. Don't despise that, but examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, for the next few minutes, I just want to speak to you very practically. In 1 John 4, John gives us, a number of tests, but I just want to look at three tests that I believe can, we can all apply to our hearts when it comes to testing spirits to determine if they're demonic or from the Holy Spirit. So these are some practical ways where we can be, shall we say, more discerning, all right? 
If you'll turn there, 1 John 4, beginning in verse 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. In other words, those unholy spirits and false teachers. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Let me pause there for a moment. Folks, remember... Satan's greatest strategy is not necessarily to oppose the church because when he opposes the church, what does it do? It just grows. His greatest strategy is to join the church and once he gets inside to do his mischief. John goes on to say, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit, in other words, every human teacher that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Let me give you some background here and then make some modern-day parallels. One of the great heresies of John's day was the heresy of docetism. Uh, That's from a Greek word meaning appearance. Uh, and, And this was an important doctrine of of Gnosticism that they were having to deal with. That you recall with Gnosticism, they believed that the material universe was evil and only spiritual realities were good. So they taught, the Docetists taught and the Gnostics taught, that Christ's body was not human, but it was rather either a ghost or, or some kind of real but celestial substance, whatever that is. Sounds like a great ghost story, doesn't it? So they believe that if Jesus had an actual body, he would have been tainted with evil. And so he was merely a a, a phantasm or an apparition, which also meant that his sufferings weren't real. They were only apparent. It was a great heresy. By the way, you can look at other cults like the Christian scientists or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. And you will see that they are all notorious for distorting the purpose and the work of Christ, denying his deity. And unfortunately, we see a lot of this in charismatic and Pentecostal circles as well. And that's what's really frightening. So the most fundamental and most important element of spiritual discernment is, number one, a true work of the Spirit will always exalt the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what John is telling us. Not the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, but that of Christ. It's the Charismatics and the Pentecostals that focus on the alleged gifts of the Spirit and supernatural anointing of the Holy Spirit and all of this. Their whole system is Spirit-centered, not Christ-centered. You will recall that Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And he said in chapter 15, verse 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, not himself. Chapter 16, verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. David Martin Lord-Jones said this, the spirit does not glorify himself, he glorifies the son. 
This is, to me, one of the most amazing and remarkable things about the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seems to hide himself and to conceal himself. He is always, as it were, putting the focus on the Son. And that is why I believe, and I believe profoundly, that the best test of all as to whether we have received the Spirit is to ask ourselves, what do we think of and what do we know about the Son? Is the Son real to us? What is the work of the Spirit? Is he glorified indirectly? Or he says he is glorified indirectly. He is always pointing us to the Son. Lloyd-Jones went on to say, and so you see how easily we go astray and become heretical if we concentrate overmuch and in an unscriptural manner upon the Spirit himself. Yes, we must realize that he dwells within us, but his work in dwelling within us is to glorify the Son and to bring to us that blessed knowledge of the Son and of his wondrous love to us. It is he who strengthens us with might in the inner man, Ephesians 3.16, that we may know this love, this love of Christ, end quote. But I would submit to you that the charismatic movement not only exalts the spirit over Christ, but it also grossly distorts the person and the work of Christ. We see this especially in the word faith movement. For example, a prosperity preacher, Kenneth Copeland, who I had an opportunity to interact with as a young theologian. One of his managers asked me to critique his theology, which I did. It fell on deaf ears, but nevertheless, Kenneth Copeland says this. How did Jesus then on the cross say, my God? And here's the answer. Because God was not his father anymore. He went on to say he took upon himself the nature of Satan. And I'm telling you, Jesus is in, is in the middle of that pit. He's suffering all that there is to suffer. His emaciated little wormy spirit is down in the bottom of that thing, and the devil thinks he's got him destroyed. But all of a sudden, God started talking, and on and on it goes. Folks, that's not only absurd, it's, it's blasphemy. And this is a man whose net worth is $760 million. Creflo Dollar, another word of faith charlatan, says this about Christ. Quote, Jesus didn't show up perfect. He grew into his perfection. You know, Jesus, in Scripture in the Bible, he went on a journey and he was tired. You better hope God don't get tired. He went on to say, but Jesus did. If he came as God and he got tired, and he says he sat down by the well because he was tired, boy, we're in trouble. And somebody said, well, Jesus came as God. Well, how many of you know the Bible? That the Bible says God never sleeps nor slumbers. slumbers. And yet in the book of Mark, we see Jesus asleep in the back of the boat, etc., etc. Clever deceptions, doctrines of demons. And yet he's got a net worth of 30 million, just recently bought a 60 million Gulfstream jet. Another distortion of Christ. We see this in the oneness Pentecostal movement, which now claims about 24 mil million members worldwide. In that movement, they deny the Trinity. They believe in the heresy known as modalism, that 
God manifests himself in three modes. You've heard of this, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not that they are, they are three co-equal, co-substantial, um, co-existent divine persons. And charismatics teach that there is, there is physical healing in the atonement. That Jesus died to make us physically healthy and materially wealthy and temporally happy. Obviously, Jesus didn't get that memo, did he? Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And like many others, Joel Osteen denies the supremacy and exclusivity of Christ as the only way to salvation. And he's even publicly stated that he believes even Mormons are true Christians. So sad. When asked if he thought people who refuse to accept Jesus Christ are wrong, Osteen responded with his typical indecision and vagueness. He said this, Well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches, and from the Christian faith, this is what I believe. By the way, it sounds like a politician, doesn't it? You can tell they're starting to do the dance here. He went on to say, but I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God. And I don't know. I've seen their sincerity. I don't know. I I know of me, for me, and what the Bible teaches, I, I just want to have a relationship with Jesus. Beloved, this is what John calls the spirit of the Antichrist. And yet here's another guy, net worth of about $50 million, peddling the gospel. By the way, I, let, let me clarify in case he's not read this, or if you have any doubt that if you don't believe in Jesus, that maybe there's some other way or whatever. Let me clarify that. Jesus said, and there is salvation in no one else, Right? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. Let me give you another passage. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14.6. Well, you get the point. I must move quickly. Not only must a true work of the Spirit always exalt the person work of Christ, but secondly, a true work of the Spirit produces personal holiness and opposes worldliness. Notice what he goes on to say in 1 John 4, 4. He says, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. And we know, according to 2 Peter 1, 4, that when a person is born again, they are made partakers of the divine nature. There is a radical transformation that occurs. There is a supernatural, instantaneous impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. They're made a new creature in Christ. The old things pass away. The new things come. And here John affirms the believer's security against these false teachers, that no satanic deception is going to in any way remove them from the grip of God's sovereign grace. Moreover, we know that genuine believers will possess a supernatural ability to understand divine truth. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 21. Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. And we know that it is by the word of God that we are sanctified. As Jesus said in John seventeen seventeen. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. It is the word of God that the spirit of God uses to conform us evermore to the likeness of Christ. That's why it is so important. It is the word of God that causes our minds to be renewed so that we can be transformed into the likeness of Christ, as we read in earlier in Romans 12, 2. But even a casual perusal of charismatic and Pentecostal history will reveal scandal after scandal, especially among the leaders. Sexual promiscuity, homosexuality, prostitution, adultery, and then there's the financial improprieties and the fleecing of the poor that are trying to buy a miracle. And it is rare to see any of them permanently removed because they are disqualified from ministry. It's tragic. Folks, this is not a work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit will produce personal holiness, and it will oppose worldliness. And then finally, a true work of the Spirit will immerse people in the truths of Scripture and produce within them biblical discernment. Notice what he says in verse 6. We, John and the other writers of Scripture, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of errors. You see, true believers will not only want to hear the truth, they will want to do the truth. They will want to be obedient to it. And they will therefore reject demonic purveyors of falsehood. They're not going to be able to stand that. It will be repulsive to them. And the scripture describes the word of God as the sword of the spirit. That's what the spirit uses. And it is the spirit of God that illumines our hearts so that we might be saved and that we might be sanctified by the word of God. We're sanctified by the word of God, not the word of man, not by extra biblical revelations that people claim they are receiving from somewhere. Dear friend, you cannot be spirit-filled unless you are scripture-filled. That's how it works. Remember in Ephesians 5.18, we are commanded to be filled with the spirit. And he goes on to describe how, and that is summarized as well in Colossians 3.16 and following, that we are to let the word of Christ do what? Dwell in you richly. So it is solely by the power of the indwelling spirit that true believers know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And folks, the more you know the truth of the word of God, the more you're going to fall in love with Christ. Amen? The more you're going to celebrate his grace, the more you're going to see your own sin and hate it and be thankful for his grace, his long-suffering compassion, and also the more quickly you'll be able to spot a counterfeit. So may I challenge you to use godly, biblical discernment and heed those who do have the spiritual gift 
of prophecy and the distinguishing of spirits. They are invaluable to the church. They help us contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. They are the ones that will help us guard the church and preserve the purity of the church from one generation to the next. There you have a little better understanding, hopefully, of the gift of distinguishing of spirits. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these gifts that you have given each of us, knowing that we each have different ones, different aspects of gifts, and they are manifested in so many different ways, but we rejoice knowing that this is a spiritual organism that responds to its head, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have equipped us and empowered us to do so. And it's for this reason that we celebrate your goodness in our lives. And Lord, if there be one here today that does not know Christ as Savior, that can honestly admit they really have no intimate relationship, no real joy in the Spirit because they really don't know and love and serve Christ, I pray that today will be the day that by the power of your Spirit you will overwhelm them with the horror of their sin, that they might be saved and this day experience the miracle of the new birth. And for those of us who know and love you, Father, I pray that you will empower us to persevere in the faith for our good and for your glory. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.